Good morning. Welcome to Wake the F Up on UMFM 101.5. We are Thursdays, 11 to 1130. Uh, my name is Karan and my pronouns are he, him. And today on the show, I have someone very special, someone that I see quite often and someone that is as interested as I am in, you know, quickly, quickly, quickly killing right wing politics. So welcome to my coworker. Hi, my name's Agata. My pronouns are she, her. I'm Karan's co-worker, and I'm here today to speak with you about right-wing populism. I'm very excited to do this. I'm really sad that Christina's not here because I'm sure that we would have a really, really good conversation. But since this is not a small conversation that we can fit into 30 minutes, I'm sure that when she's back, we're going to have a much longer one on right-wing culture, this whole idea of the disenfranchised white male and you know so on and so forth the umfm 11.5 broadcasts at 1200 watts from the university of manitoba campuses located on the stolen lands of anishinaabeg nehiawak cree oji cree dakota and dene peoples and on the homeland of the metis nation we respect the treaties that were made on these territories we acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past and those that are still ongoing in the present we acknowledge our privilege as settlers on this land and we dedicate ourselves to move forward in partnership with Indigenous communities in a spirit of decolonization and collaboration. So the reason why Agana and I talk to each other about right-wing populism and politics a lot is because we come from countries that are inherently, you know, have tendencies to be very, very populist. Maybe not so much for me, because India has become uh, very populist in the recent four to five years even though populism has obviously always existed but recently it has become a much much bigger issue so maybe agata maybe if you want to define to our listeners what populism is maybe we should start there okay so um sort of a very simple definition that i go by is that populism is a politics of division of uh, opposition, a sort of us versus them mentality. And in terms of right-wing populism, it is often the minorities that are painted as a them. Right. And it's often very much like power to the people almost, but... Yeah, like it co-opts a lot of the language of left-wing movements and uh, workers' rights movements while not really being about those things. Right. And this is something that has been very upcoming. And, you know, we'll see this trend throughout the world. And I think the reason why it's important to look at right-wing populism and look at it as a threat often is... Because it often kills marginalized people. And that's why in feminism, we have to be much more aware of the politics that go around us. Because we cannot be looking at, oh my god, there is oppression, without also looking at, oh my god, why is there oppression? You know what I mean? Yeah, the social is the political and vice versa. Exactly. And so in India, actually, right now what's happening is we have a Hindu nationalist, which is, you know, the Indian equivalent of being a white nationalist, but in India. Um, So you're still brown, but (laughs) you got some issues. And 
we we have this prime minister in power, Modi. He's been a part of the BJP, which is the Hindu Nationalist Party of India. Keep in mind, Hindu nationalism has always been an issue in India. Always. Throughout the history. After colonialism, it spiked especially. And recently, I decided to take to social media to discuss with my Indian peers how negative it was going to be for India, or it is going to be for India, if Modi comes into power again for another term, another four years. How horrible is it's going to be? Or another five years, I guess, because that's Indian politics. I don't know, though. And I was actually surprised by the response I got from people I used to go to school with. Yeah, that's always the most shocking when it's like people you thought you knew and they come out with these really, really quite disturbing ideas. Correct. And... (laughs) You know, like BJP came into the power the same way as any other populist in the past has come into power. Framing a left-wing political party. So in India, we have the Indian National Congress, which later became or at least branched off into the United Progressive Alliance and had a good leadership. Not, Not a bad one, but was, you know, its leadership was mired with corruption scandals that were not always necessarily the fault of the exact leadership or the presidency or the, you know, of the parliament, basically. It was not the politicians that were always elected that were related to these scandals, but because it happened under them, right-wing populists such as Modi took advantage of these issues and swiftly rose to power. And now people cannot imagine an India without Modi because that's just how good he is. Even though, objectively, he is hurting people. He has been not an ally to a lot of our Muslim citizenry. Muslim people are dying at the hands of this ideology that, you know, um, secularism is a colonial hangover and that India was destined to be a Hindu state and that all the Muslims should go back to Pakistan and that, or, or Bangladesh or whatever it is and that India should return to its Hindu glory which India has never, ever, ever been Hindu before, you know, when, like, our history of, like, Arab invasions and things like that. But that was, like, really, really long ago, like, way before colonialism, way, way, way before colonialism. So the fact that people still think that it's a Hindu state is very disturbing. But that in itself is a trend throughout the world where people are thinking that, their identities are at risk of collapsing because of introduction of various other identities and are now acting out. And these groups are now acting out against the inclusion of people, which oftentimes leads to killings of people. We are seeing in India the mass lynchings of Muslim people just because they're choosing to eat meats that normally the religion of Hinduism wouldn't allow Hindus to eat. And so we see this like very, very little distinction between the state and religion to not like i can't really use the word church here but the state and the church are not separated and congress while having progressive leadership has actually been you know like it's seen its demise essentially and i have no doubt that modi is going to come into power again because just seeing the trend just seeing the trend everywhere modi is actually supposed to be the most popular politician in the world on social media, the most charming, apparently, for... Well, I, I don't really get it, because he's kind of he's kind of a dud. But no, I, I haven't heard him uh, speak or anything like that. So yeah, you really don't want to. But, <laughs> like, people really like him. Like, in fact, people have started, like, using their social media handles to promote the fact that they're Hindu nationalists and that they support Modi, like, 
till they die. Like they, they love him. They love him so much. Oh, so there's like a cult of personality oh, going yeah. on. Oh yeah, for sure. And that's gonna that's gonna make him win. So, what's your experience with populism? Okay, so um, to first introduce uh, who I am uh, and why I want to speak to you about all these things I'm about to pour out right now. Uh, I am an immigrant to Canada. I consider myself to be Polish-Canadian. I lived in Poland until I was 12 years old. So uh, I am very much a person that is bicultural, I guess uh, what you would call it. And I do keep up with what's going on in my country and what's going on in Canada. And I can't help but see a lot of parallels, as uh, you were saying, with India and Poland. So the sort of thing that first came to mind when you were speaking about the Hindu nationalism is the religious aspect of it. And for Poland, there is a, a little bit of a difference in that Poland was always very, very Christian. Uh, right. So sort of unlike what you said that there was quite a bit more secularism before. In Poland, that was not the case. Like, basically all throughout history, Christianity was a very important aspect of both Poland as a state and both the Polish identity. But right now, um, there is a very, very big push by right-wing populists to be more Catholic and to protect the Catholic aspect of the Polish identity against, you know, the attacks from them and them usually being um, EU, uh, Western leftists, all that sort of thing. So there's this um, almost like fear-mongering of people taking away your right to be religious. And there's a lot of um, examples of how that's uh, how that occurs. So right now, what you might see in the news about Poland is the big movie that came out, a documentary about pedophilia and the Catholic Church that has been shaking up the whole country. Like on the news, if you if you go onto a Polish news website, it's basically just all all about this right now, and. In terms of how the leadership has responded to this, um, primarily the party Pravo i Sprawiedliwość, Law and Justice, they are the majority party right now. They are in control, basically, of the country. And the responses of some of their politicians have been really painting this whole big expose that's been done on abuses in the Catholic Church as an attack on the Catholic religion. So it it really plays into that mindset. Meanwhile, everyone else just wants to make a better country where children don't get abused on the regular. Right. And that's what's like really alarming to me about populism, because as you I just want to go back to what you said earlier about this whole concept of populism inherently being about divisive politics and mirroring a lot of left-wing workers' rights movements and things like that. Because objectively, when you look at it, and this is not even like a partisan issue for me, at least, and I would hope that that's the case for a lot of people, that you wouldn't want children to be sexually assaulted or sexually exploited. 
But when we point out fingers and say, well, this is an institution that has been known for, you know, in, in any part of the world, really, if you go to Canada and if you look at residential schools, this institution has sexually exploited children and really killed a lot of children of color, indigenous children. And now we are looking at how they have done so in their own countries. And people are trying to say that that is an attack on themselves, even though that is the objective truth, that this is happening, that people are dying because of this, that people are being scarred for a lifelong because for their entire lives because of this, and that, you know, there is a lot of emotional trauma because of this. And we don't want that, but somehow that's being translated as we don't want your culture to be a thing. Yes, yes, exactly. And this is a ridiculous notion. My parents, for, for one, are deeply religious people they are very very christian but they aren't at all opposed to harsher penalties on the catholic church and changing this culture of uh, silencing victims right and that's a thing like i i recently remember studying or doing a research paper on this whole phenomena of right-wing populism and i chose i think india and brazil for this which I'll come back to, but I think I read one very, very enlightening study, which was published on The Atlantic, and they say that there's a difference between right-wing and left-wing populism as well. Inherently, right-wing populism is about demonizing other parties and coming in and, you know, using fear-mongering tactics, as you said, against immigrants, women, LGBT folks, other people of color, you know, racialized groups, marginalized groups, and using those tactics to just stay in power for as long as they can, just as a power grab. And that's the difference between left-wing and right-wing populism, is that while populism is just about, oh, we're for the people, it's an us versus them, like, you know, we're listening to the actual things, what people want to see happen, or what people want to see change... That's the difference about this is that, and I, and I quote, while right-wing populists victimize unpopular minorities and weaponize public anger for illicit goals, left-wing populists are supposedly far more likely to correct elite failures on behalf of the poor and the downtrodden. So you will often find that left-wing populism consists of, you know, like people are calling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a left-wing populist. I mean, in a sense, I, w- I would sort of agree. And I do too. Um, but... It's not necessarily a bad thing. Right? Exactly, because her populism, and I guess this is like obviously our bias, right? And, oh, yeah. And, and like, I don't think that climate change politics is populist in any way. It's just that it doesn't have a voice in po- politics, in mainstream politics, and that someone is bringing this to attention is now being labeled as populist. And I guess that's fair. I think that's fine. Well, in terms of the environmental issues... Yeah, I don't think it's fair to frame it as populist in any way, as there's not really any opposition, like, them to oppose. Like, it's just a matter of making things better for everyone involved. And it's not like people who are pro-environmental protections are against some sort of group of people. Like, they're not targeting people who are against whatever um, people who are, like, climate change denials. They're not against those people. They're against destroying the environment. Right, right, exactly. And that's that's kind of the difference. Like, she in contemporary, or her in contemporary politics is the only other person that I can think of that has been named, that has been labeled a left-wing populist, which, again, she's trying to undo all these harms. 
And how can we talk about populism and not mention people like Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro? Like, oh, this is the thing. This is what populists do. Let's look at immigration. People are dying at the Mexican-U.S. border right now because of this whole notion of us versus them, because of this whole idea that, oh, people are coming in, stealing jobs. I don't even want to get into the myths that exist against immigrants. I don't even want to get into that right now. I don't even want to, you know, like fully explore the harms that refugees have to go through in their home countries and then leaving those home countries and the trauma that they face, the intergenerational trauma, in fact, not just, you know, something that dies off with one generation of refugees. Like, I, I cannot even begin to fathom that. But look at, look at the news yesterday, the bill in Alabama that passed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... Well on its way to becoming a law. Well on its way to criminalize, as a felony, miscarriages. Believe it or not, miscarriages can be felonies now in states like Georgia, Ohio, Kentucky, Alabama, all of these red Republican states that, you know, have been becoming more and more vocal about it after the election of the biggest right wing populist, Donald Trump. Build the wall. Does that have any sort of pragmatic sense to it? Absolutely not. No, no, it definitely doesn't. It's it's the same rhetoric over and over it's, it's just looking for someone to blame for all these economic issues that are coming from completely different um, things than what they're saying they're coming from. Right. And there's so many different strata of politics to look at or even society to look at, because how did it happen that abortion became so, so, so criminalized in these states faster than any gun ownership did? And what are we doing to combat that? So this notion of, you know, oh, it's us versus them. It's these people who are killing these babies, blah, 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 blah. We need to criminalize it. Even in cases of rape and incest, we're not actually going to do anything for rape but or to combat rape. But we will, we will make sure that women don't get to choose to do what they want to with their bodies. That's the notion. Not to mention that... Um the criminalization of late-term abortions, which most often are performed not really out of a willingness to abort, but rather medical necessity, which for a woman to have to go through, first of all, losing her child that she was very much looking forward to, and then to have to deal with the legal aspect of it, that's just plain cruel right and like i just want to go on the record and also say that i don't care what reason a woman is or a person with a uterus is getting an abortion for i don't care i don't care if it's rape i don't care if it's just a mistake i don't care yeah i I definitely also support that sentiment but it's just something i saw a lot of people to point out and i thought that it's so it's ridiculous because i know people who have had miscarriages and to think that they would be criminalized because of this oh and look at jair bolsonaro He, like the Brazilian politics, is inherently also a mess with their military rules, their military coups and their history of that. And seeing how, you know, left parties like the Workers' Party um, fell from power under Dilma Rousseff and how she being a female prime minister or president. um, I don't really know how Brazilian parliament works, but her being the first female leadership in Brazil was impeached 
for not being related to corruption scandals, but for having corruption scandals take place under her leadership. And Jair Bolsonaro, a person who said to a female senator that you are too ugly to rape, who has said, who has made comments like, we only tolerate the homosexuals, we don't actually like them, who said that he would rather have his son dead than be gay, who has said that, you know, once he would take office, there wouldn't be a centimeter of land for Afro for Afro-Indigenous Brazilians, you know, is terrible. And this has happened. The Workers' Party of Brazil was was ousted because they had the Petrobras corruption scandal happen under them. And I'm not going to get into the details of this corruption scandal, but it happened, and they used it as a scapegoat to gain power. And now they want more military rule, more safety, quote-unquote, more gun ownership, more exploitation of the Amazonian forest, like that that's what they want to do because the people saving indigenous land the people trying to protect indigenous territory are somehow now evil yeah so so i can definitely relate to uh all this stuff you're talking about brazil you're talking about brazil and uh india your home country and I definitely see all of the similar signs of this happening in Europe. Uh, for example, there's this recent interview with uh, Hungary's, uh, I believe he's a prime minister, the proper title. You're talking about Viktor Orban? Viktor Orban. Orban? Yeah. Mm. Prime minister, yes. So the Hungarian prime minister, Viktor Orban, and in this interview, the things he said are are so blatantly right-wing populist like i saw this yesterday and i immediately thought of like this is exactly the sort of thing um that we are talking about here for example on the topic of calling his rule illiberal um leadership so the journalist uh tells him you have become the leader in europe of the illiberal leadership uh he responded let me stop you right there because we should agree on our terms. What is the reality? Liberalism gave rise to political correctness, that is, to a form of totalitarianism, which is the opposite of democracy. That's why I believe illiberalism restores true freedom, true democracy. <laughs> it's, it's instantly just painting You're joking. a whole political ideology, one that personally I don't even agree with, as being opposed to democracy, as totalitarian and it's it's just the very definition of right-wing populism wow i actually can't believe that he would say that an illiberal democracy well illiberal democracy like that in itself is so contradictory but like that that would be an ideal way of living society like that to me is delusional and like that statement can be very partisan but I think that whenever democracy is under threat, democracy, a system which has withstood the the strength of time and, you know, it's the best system that we've come up with to understand politics and live as a society, when that is under threat, you should be scared. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's, that's when we should and really, really be critical of these politicians who say that. And I mean, he personally paints as being a promoter of democracy while himself supporting policies that silence free speech and stifle the discourse. But, but we're seeing how this right-wing populist, you know, movement for free speech, which is often miscon misconstrued as freedom of speech 
and no consequences for the speech, you know, it's being misconstrued as so, is so important. But we see what this freedom of speech, quote unquote, does to marginalized people. Take, for example, New Zealand. We saw what happened. And I'm not obviously going to give this right-wing terrorist who killed over 50 Muslim people in their safe space of worship. I'm not going to give this person the time of day, but we saw what happened. We saw the manifesto. We saw what promoted him to kill so many people, so many innocent people that would never harm him or would even think of harming him. So we saw that. We saw what this whole notion of, well, if I want to be racially abusive, I'm gonna. We saw, we saw what this notion does. And how do we combat that? How, like, how, how, how does this, how do we even begin to wrap our heads around this? Because this can, like, this often sends me into an existential dread. This often, often, often says to me that, oh, well, right-wing populists are coming into power and there's not much you can do. And, well, looks like we're all going to die. <laughs> like Honestly, uh, personally, I think any action is better than inaction and that we cannot count on people in power to lead that action. It has to come from those of us that actually are affected by this, that actually care, unfortunately. Like, I wish it was different. I wish that the people in power would combat this but unfortunately more often than not they are not interested in it or if they are it's in a very self-serving way as a way to do the least possible do the least amount of work possible while getting the most credit right right and yeah just like it gives me hope when there's politicians like Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand when, you know, when she took action against this and now is calling upon leaders all over the world to see how social media sites can moderate their extremist content on any sort of political spectrum and and how it should not be cultivating such cultures that lead to millions of people being attacked constantly for things that they haven't done. I, I think that that's a good place to end at right now even though we've opened this big can of worms and i think that it would be you know i mean i'm gonna out you agata you spend a lot of time on reddit yes i do i do that's my one vice and i and i think that maybe we should continue this conversation into next week and see how incels and all these like right-wing niche internet cultures and subcultures create this or pave the way for this sort of right-wing populist sentiment throughout citizenry, which is actually very, very detrimental to democracies. Oh yeah, the online radicalization pipeline is huge. Uh, See, I didn't even know that term. (laughs) Yeah, you can go onto basically any major website and find white nationalist recruiting. You can find Islamophobia, you can find homophobia, transphobia, any form of racism, nationalism, anything on every single website, and especially uh, poorly moderated websites well, such that's as Reddit fun. and YouTube. That's amazing. Well, that's really good to hear. So, I think that's it for this time around, folks. We're we're all out of time here. But next week, catch us, catch me and Agata talking politics again and seeing. 
seeing how uh, this scary culture can actually dictate democracies around the world. Thanks so much for tuning in today to Wake the F Up at 101.5 UMFM. Um, catch us next week. Bye.